This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today is another installment of the spooky edition of the podcast. I'm going to be talking about a video game this week. I haven't talked about a video game in a while, but I just played or finished playing this game that I thought was a really good fit for the show and is a little bit spooky. So it's perfect timing to kind of dive into it. The game is called Control. It came out in 2019 and it's really heavily influenced by Carl Jung's work on the collective unconscious and archetypes, which is something that we love to talk about on this show. Um, And it's also influenced by works such as Annihilation, the Jeff Vandermeer series, um, Inception, the film Inception, the SCP Foundation uh, project, if anyone's familiar with that, and Stanley Kubrick's work. So It has a lot of elements of things that I've talked about on the show before, things that I really enjoy, so I hope that talking about the the game will be interesting. And I'm going to mostly spend some time talking about the way that um, some Jungian archetypes show up in this game and kind of break down those archetypes and what Jung conceptualized them to be. Just a quick summary, if you have not seen like playthroughs of the game or haven't played the game yourself, the main character that you play as is a woman named Jessie Faden, and she has supernatural powers that were given to her by an entity named Polaris. And one day she is told by this entity that she needs to show up at this building that is the home of the Federal Bureau of Control. And the Federal Bureau of Control is a shadowy government agency that deals with the supernatural. And she has been told that her brother, who has been missing for 17 years, is being held in this Bureau of Control. Chaos breaks loose. Jesse ends up becoming the director of this government agency and facing a pretty formidable enemy called the Hiss, which is a frequency, a sound that mind controls everyone in the building, unless you are wearing specific countermeasures. So it really does become an analogy for a good versus evil battle, um, all set in the background of a, like a government bureaucracy. And I'm going to talk a little bit about like that is such an interesting trope that comes up and, and why that might be um, such a, a trope that continues to fascinate us. An interesting component to the game is that you encounter these things known as objects of power or altered items. Both types of items are everyday objects that have some type of power. And you learn through the lore of the game that the power, the supernatural power that these objects have becomes stronger as more people come in contact with them. And this is the way that the collective unconscious is kind of explained or manifested in the game. 
the more that someone interacts with or the more that different people believe that something as simple as a floppy disk or a slide projector have these types of powers, the more powerful that they become. And I I like that these everyday objects are the avatar, if you will, for the collective unconscious, because it speaks to Jung's idea that these ideas are very pervasive. They are, there are things in the collective unconscious that any one of us would be able to recognize from wherever we are. Um, and the the game sets up this uh, kind of caveat that there's no technology allowed in the building because the building itself is supernatural. So you, the whole game takes place in this kind of like 1960s background with like, uh, you know, there's there's really like no computers or if they are, they're like old school, like punch card computers. Everything is... Uh, like wood paneled and just looks very 60s um, and kind of kind of reminds me of like the X-Files that like FBI look especially the the earlier seasons have Um, so this idea of like there's this um, ongoing aesthetic to the game is also part of the collective unconscious so I'm gonna first talk about the Federal Bureau of Control itself which I think is a character in the game and kind of what it it represents the kind of trope that the Federal Bureau of Control pulls on or the FBC pulls on is this trope of a shadowy government agency that its stated purpose is to hold the line between good and evil, but sometimes does evil as well. It serves as a very good representation for this idea that when we have a system, although the system is supposed to be or expected to function perfectly, The system is made up of flawed humans, which therefore makes the system flawed. The as we learn throughout the end of throughout the game is that the reason that the enemy is even present in this world is because the former director of the FBC was corrupted, and he let the hiss in to the agency and ultimately, you know, to take over the world. And he also was a very flawed man in his personal life before he even encountered the the enemy. And we hear through flashbacks and other like items in the game that he essentially abandoned his wife and child by getting so caught up in his work and not being able to really be present with them. So if we have that type of man at the head of an agency, then the agency itself can't be perfect. It can't do the things, these these idealistic things that maybe the system was set up to do. And then you end up in a situation where other individual actors in the game or in the system are acting in their own best interest rather than in the collective best interest. The former director, Director Trench, was making decisions for himself and his subordinates, including a main character whose name is Dr. Darling, also was making decisions for themselves, and Dr. Darling ends up making some things worse because he abandons the facility when the enemy takes hold, even though he was the only one who figured out how to combat the enemy or um, combat the effects of this entity that's, like, taking over people's minds. So all these, like, individualistic uh, people are acting on their own desires and not necessarily on the good of the whole. And I do think that this is just an interesting point to touch on because the game is set in America. The the FBC's headquarters are in New York. 
Um, and it just highlights this kind of impact of individualism on what is supposed to be a collective organization. Individualism is when the, the person really is making decisions based on themselves and not necessarily considering what's best for the group or the collective impact of their decisions. And America is a very individualistic society. So it is difficult for people who have been raised in, in an individualistic society like America <laughs> to then be able to make collective decisions or think about the world in a collective way. Like, for instance, being able to think, what is the consequence of my decision to quit my job, right? Maybe the consequences for me are that I feel better, but it may be that my family doesn't have as much income, uh, not just my immediate family, but my extended family, if I'm a, you know, very primary breadwinner for everyone. And, you know, what are the kind of ripple effects of that? Um, and so the the plot of control really does highlight this, that if everybody is kind of moving in their own direction and not just acting on their own desires, but really acting as if they are the only ones who can be the hero, then um, we, we end up with a lot of conflicting narratives, right? The former director thinks that he is the hero because he's been corrupted by the hiss and he lets it in. Dr. Darling thinks he's the hero because he has like fixed the he's figured out a way to fight this enemy uh, and then we're playing as Jessie the the hero and she actually represents the hero archetype so I'll talk, I'll talk about that a little bit more but each of these characters are acting as the hero and any and other heroes come along as well or, or people who put themselves in the hero position and that just creates a lot of conflict if we don't have one guiding force or guiding purpose then it can make it really difficult for the machine to kind of move together I think the part of the FBC archetype that is very spooky is this idea of the immutable bureaucracy, that there is this such a massive faceless system set in place that it can't be stopped. Once the cogs are in motion, no matter who is acting upon them, the machine will keep turning. And this shows up across all types of films, TV shows, games, albums, like this trope is everywhere. And so I think this idea of this bureaucracy, the faceless bureaucracy is very relatable, resonates with a lot of people. And that's because we have to deal with it. All of us, I mean, I'm going to speak for America here because that's where I live. All of us have had to deal with a faceless bureaucracy in some way. If we've ever had to go to the DMV, ever had to deal with the IRS, any time of government program or agency, your insurance company. I've been dealing with having to call Kaiser this week to make an appointment. And, you know, although I am talking to individual people, there are rules and motions that the system has set up that are in motion, right? And and my desires are not going to change that, right? My requests are not going to change that. So it's very, very relatable for us, this idea of the, the faceless bureaucracy or immutable bureaucracy. So to take this environment that is mundane, run-of-the-mill, something that you associate with like a boring or even painful task, to take that type of environment and then to center a... Um, like abnormal storyline or a scary storyline, it almost ups the the dread in our psyches because we are not anticipating these types of things to be occurring 
in an environment that you or I could be in. And that's what I think is, is why I really like video games, because you can explore so much things about the environment that you wouldn't be able to explore in a, a movie or a show because you're on the track that the director wants you to be on. But in a video game, you can go look in the corner and go explore these things. Um, and, and the environment of this game is incredible. There's so many details. Um, one of the things you first notice is that when Jessie becomes the new director, her picture shows up in the hallways um, as like previously the, the former director's picture, like portrait had been in different areas of the building and then it becomes Jesse's picture. And it gives you the sense that the building that you're in is like a living organism, that it's reacting to things around it. And I think that makes it even more scary, like, oh, there's a consciousness or a sentienceness to this like old scary building that we're in. And it is adapting to us in a way that we wouldn't expect from a building. And I know it's on my computer and it's fake, but <laughs> I, I found the environment to be very immersive and for there to be lots of um, things to explore. And the, the story is told through a lot of like government redacted government reports. And so it just really does build this sense of frustration that why can't I read this whole document? Why is so much redacted? What are they keeping from us? And it really plays on these, I think, kind of almost conspiratorial, but <laughs> these ideas that we have about, you know, what is the purpose of the government? Does it hide information from us? Um, and how, what are you supposed to do when you find out that information has been hidden from you? Do you seek out more? Do you go with the 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 lie or the little information that you have? Um, and you get to make that choice in the game, right? You can choose to hunt down the scraps of paper and the recordings to learn more, or you can just run through the game and kind of not really know what's going on. So that's just a little bit of an aside, but I... I liked how the environment of the game itself was a character and an archetype and really pulls on this idea of we all have a boring place that we have to go to and what would happen if that boring place was full of monsters what would you do if when you were at the dmv all of a sudden the um like little tv screen that has the numbers on it became imbued with supernatural power and was throwing things around the room i don't know i would probably be really scared <laughs> but just like those those types of ideas i think are what made just the background of the game very interesting um and then again because the aesthetic is like a very 1960s 1970s vibe it does pull up these uh, memories of this era of government testing that was very psychological in nature and so I think I've talked about these types of things before, maybe not really, uh, but in my conspiratorial thinking episodes, but these, you know, conspiracy theories around things like Project MKUltra, or um, if you've ever seen the documentary Wormwood on Netflix, this these like secret LSD tests that were being done by the government. And it's hard to know what is the line between what is true. Like there is documentation that some of these things happened and what is exaggeration or conspiracy? And so having things set in that time in this game really does call back to that era, which I, again, it's just really wonderfully done. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, I'm going to start breaking down some of the characters and their archetypes. And we're back. I'm going to kick us off by talking about our main playable character, Jesse Faden, who has become the new director of the FBC after she discovers the former director's body laying on the floor of his office 
presumably after he has killed himself with a gun. And the kind of first moments of the game are this entity in Jesse's head tells her to pick up the gun. And the gun is actually one of the supernatural objects that chooses who the next director of the FBC will be. And the gun chooses Jesse. And so from the beginning of the game, she has been set up in this new role as the director. She also represents like the good side of the conflict in the game. She is anti the hiss or you know fighting the enemy, um, and she she is a seeker. Like her whole life, she has had these interactions with paranormal activities that people have told her are not true, or that she's lying, or she's crazy, and it was just a mental illness, not a supernatural experience. But she has known this whole time. There's something else out there. She knows this entity that has given her um, her powers exists. And so she is a, a continuous seeker and has been seeking for her brother for 17 years. Jessie is a pretty clear representation of the hero archetype. Young has 12 main archetypes and the hero is one of them. This archetype tends to be focused on improving the world Obviously, Jesse's trying to improve the world because she's trying to defeat the bad guys. And is also this archetype is also focused on being seen and, and feeling strong and competent in the world. In the game, that looks like her not only um, you know, taking on this role as director and wanting to do a good job of it, um, but of going out and doing these, these missions where she defeats larger and more complicated enemies throughout the series, uh, throughout the game, and as the difficulty increases. In the kind of day-to-day and not a game world, the hero archetype might be someone who really does want to take on leadership positions, wants to get promoted at their job, or wants to be a community leader in some way. And um, not just out of a sense of being seen as strong, although that is a, a motivating factor for this archetype, but on truly wanting to improve the world, as wanting to leave the world better than they found it when they came across it. This archetype's main fear is being seen as weak or vulnerable or truly being weak or vulnerable. We see this with Jessie in the game um, because one of the unique things about the game is we get uh, her inner dialogue. She is like the, the narrator of her thoughts, even if she's not speaking with a character. And so there are times where you'll be in dialogue with other of the main characters and Jessie is kind of voicing her reservations to share pieces of herself, like how much of her story or how much of her limitations does she want to share with the other characters in the game. And this, I think, really represents this idea that it's worse to be seen as weak or to be weak um, than it is to let everyone kind of get to know you and, and have the information about you so that they could help you. She also consistently expresses this theme that like she doesn't really deserve the title of director and she doesn't think anybody will trust her to be the director, even though she has the entered into a culture, the FBC culture is whoever wields the gun, the, or it's called the service weapon, whoever wields the service weapon is the director, like whoever the gun chooses. And so for everybody else in the FBC, Jesse is the director. It doesn't matter what happened to the previous director. They like their culture is she's the director, but she still has this fear that she's not going to do a good job and they're not going to want to follow her. And that is this kind of fear uh, that the hero archetype tends to have. 
again, in a non-game world in the kind of the day-to-day, um, you know, this might look like someone who is in that leadership position and is really struggling with something like imposter syndrome and thinks that, um, you know, my, my coworkers or my subordinates are going to think that I don't deserve this job and they think that I'm weak, that that might be the way that that looks in real life. Um, and the, the true weakness of the hero, so their fear is being seen as weak, but the thing that will make them weak is always going, going to the next battle, going to the next challenge. Jessie is a perfect example of this because she takes on all of these missions in the game. I mean, I know it is part of the game, but basically the way that she communicates with other characters in the game is if they voice a problem, she says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And these range from tasks like clearing out a clog in the drain for the janitor, you know, all the way up to defeating enemies in different wings of the game. Those are kind of what the side missions manifest as. Now, it is no ordinary clog. It is a supernatural clog. So like, whatever, that makes sense. (laughs) But still, the idea is like, she's not able to delegate because she's always chasing that next challenge. I have to take it on all myself. I have to be the one who... To improve the world, I have to be the one to do it. To take care of my people, I have to be the one to do it. And so that is the way in which someone who kind of falls into the archetype of the hero, that can be their downfall is always saying yes, always chasing the next battle uh, and not being able to like really delegate or get support or ask for help if need be. So I would say if you do map more on to the hero archetype, like be aware of that, that this can be you're failing. Now, you know, I've talked about the Barnum effect on this show before. So I'm not saying that the archetypes are, you know, one size fit all or really mean anything about your personality in a meaningful way. But I I think that they can be useful constructs to talk about like, oh, I, I see myself in aspects of this archetype. Let me watch out for like, what are my strengths and weaknesses? Like, what do I relate to and, and might want to know about myself as, as because I relate to parts of this archetype? So that's Jessie. She, she's the hero. Obviously, she's in the placement of the hero um, because of the, her role as the main character of the game. Uh, but she also does embody these characteristics of the hero archetype. Next, in conflict to Jessie, we have her brother Dylan, Um, The reason that he has been missing for 17 years and that she's been searching for him is that when Jesse and Dylan were children, they were involved in what is called an altered world event or AWE. And this is the FBC's bread and butter. They come after AWEs and they try to clean up afterwards, just like you would expect a government agency who deals with the supernatural to do. So Dylan and Jesse were part of a uh, very intense AWE in their childhood, which was when Jesse got her powers. Jesse was able to escape, but Dylan was not, and he was captured. And basically, the FBC raised him in captivity in their creepy old building and thought that he was going to be the next director. And so we're kind of grooming him to take over the director's spot. However, after years of captivity and isolation, Dylan has become incredibly violent and antisocial. And this is something, again, you learn from these little snippets throughout the game, is that even as a child, he would have these episodes where he had supernatural powers and they would, um, he would react very violently and end up killing or hurting people in the agency. Now, this is also another way that shows how the FBC is this like soulless bureaucracy because they 
thought the best solution was to lock an 11 year old up in a cage for years and keep him isolated. And then we're shocked when he turned out not so great. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's on the FBC. <laughs> uh, Dylan also, he kind of represents the bad side of the conflict as he ultimately does side with the hiss and becomes their conduit. In fact, that's who you have to confront at the end of the game is Dylan, who has been completely given over to the hiss. And there's some really interesting dialogue that you can have with Dylan um, that, that's optional. Like It's not necessarily a part of the main game, but if you keep going to where he is kept for most of the game, you can have these conversations with him. And he talks a lot about this like giving over to the power of the hiss because it's just easier to... Um, give into it and the the trade-off is then he becomes powerful so he's not necessarily the agent in control of himself because he's joining into this collective like hive mind but he is imbued with power and no longer feels powerless and this is very important to his archetype which is the rebel so the rebels kind of main goal or way that they view the world is that rules are meant to be broken and they're primarily motivated by revenge this makes a lot of sense for Dylan. He's been kidnapped. He was kidnapped and held hostage for almost his entire life and his, all of his adult life. He is wanting revenge on the FBC, and the hiss is the way for him to get that revenge. He also wants revenge on his sister because he has come to believe over these years of isolation that she abandoned him on that day when they were both children, and he does not believe her when she says that she has been searching for him all these years. He instead is very focused on the way that he feels wronged by her rather than trying to understand the situation or take into account like how would a 13 year old girl fight an entire government agency to get her brother back um and so he's he's motivated by revenge and the more that he sees that jesse is anti the hiss the more it drives him to the hiss and he's trying to show her like you know i i'm not here to reconnect with you but i'm here to teach you a lesson and to get my revenge in Day-to-day life, you know, the rebel might be the person who is, um, well, obviously is breaking the rules, right? There's someone who who doesn't see the purpose of the rules. And this can have a really good place in the world, right? Some some rules do need to be broken. And this um, might be someone like who is an activist. Like if I think of, if you think of um, like segregation era activists, like the people who would go in and sit at the uh, restaurant counters that, you know, they weren't allowed to sit at because of their color of their skin, right? That would be the rebel archetype that, you know, that you've made a rule here that needs to be broken and I'm I'm here to like get mine for what's been done to my people, right? And that's that's admirable. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more at, at the end here, but uh, Young does not characterize any of these archetypes as good or bad. And in fact, there are ways in which your archetype can be corrupted and they're in, in the like evil way. But there are also ways that your archetype can be corrupted in like the good way. And so there is a natural balance between dark and light that Jung thought was good for us to have. So the rebel has incredible qualities that are necessary and can have weaknesses that are not so great, right? Just like the hero has weaknesses. And when the hero falls to their weaknesses, they may be, you know, not doing so hot, right? (laughs) Might not be such a great archetype when they're falling into their weakness. Same for the rebel when they're in their their kind of strength or their um, their you know strong motivation they they may be doing really amazing things but that they fall into their weakness it may not be so good um, so main motivation is is 
breaking the rules and kind of like this revenge or the sense of justice. The greatest fear of the rebel is to be powerless. And I think this is very clear with Dylan. He's been kept in a cage without any power with things done to him to tamp down his own natural powers. And he is afraid of that. This is like a, a devastating condition to be kept in. And again, understandable. Like I don't, I don't think Dylan's experience is something where I'm like, Oh, he's just like a bad guy. Like, his um his character is very complex and very interesting and i think the natural conclusion of what would happen if you kept someone locked up for that long and experimented on them in the bottom of a creepy house <laughs> um and so because dylan is so terrified of being powerless the hiss the enemy is able to exploit that and gives uh dylan an opportunity to try to escape that fear by giving him power um so again in the kind of day-to-day or normal, not video game world, the the sphere of being powerless might be, um, you know, somebody who really struggles with uh, fitting into systems because of this this feeling that like my power is being taken from me. Um, who might really really be afraid of losing their agency over themselves or their ability to make decisions for themselves. The weakness of the rebel is crossing to the dark side or, you know, kind of letting the the shadow self completely take over and completely twist oneself. Um, this happens incredibly quickly to Dylan in the game. He's taken in by the hiss, like um, the first time that he hears it and pretty much immediately is like, yep, I'll be a bad guy. Um, and the the hiss's primary motive is to consume the entire world and to kind of integrate every being on the earth into its hive mind. And we learn that it is an entity that goes from planet to planet, you know, because of course this is a universe where there are multiple planets with life forms on them because it's a video game. (laughs) Um, But they go from planet to planet and they consume and integrate everyone into their hive mind. And Dylan, because he is so weak to his fear, he's so taken in by his fear of being powerless, he gives in to this dark side, even though it would be incredibly difficult to be the rebel in a hive mind, right? Dylan is going to lose himself. This like core archetype of himself is going to be lost in a hive mind, but his his weakness of crossing over to the dark side, to the, the fastest way to get away from his powerlessness is what does him in. And I think that's what ends up making him the villain of the game. Not that he is in himself the archetype of the rebel. I think the rebel is often a figure that we root for in games or movies, um, but he is a rebel who has uh, been corrupted and has been twisted into his weakness. And so I will just briefly touch on um, the shadow side because I think that the hiss or the enemy really represents an aspect of the shadow side that has gone uninhibited. And so Young conceptualized that we within each of us within our archetypes there are shadow sides and there are light sides and the shadow side is not it's easy to think that it's like the evil or the bad side but young did not believe that he did not think that the shadow was inherently evil in fact he saw it as a vital piece of the psyche that we need to achieve balance and he was all about finding balance within our archetypes the shadow as he conceptualized it is kind of our drive instinct so our our drive to live and our sex drive, which is, you can, this is the influence of Freud, these ideas that like sex was such a driver of, of things. And so Jung incorporates that 
that instinct into his his theory as well. Um, and the shadow is an unconscious part of ourselves that contains all of our repressed desires and weaknesses. So if you remember back to last week when we talked about Bo is Afraid and we talked about the id, that was Freud's theory of how our brain kind of deals with these drives to eat, to consume, to have sex, to not die, right, to escape <laughs> death. Uh, Freud conceptualized those as the id and that they were unconscious and Jung conceptualizes them as the shadow and that they're also unconscious. The shadow side Young believes comes out of us adapting to cultural norms and it contains all of the parts of ourselves or the things that we want to do that would be considered unacceptable to society as well as to our own morals. So if we live in a society that says that having sex outside of marriage is bad, that's an, a norm that we say, please don't, do, please don't do that. <laughs> the shadow side would then be made up of these like sex drives that exist outside of um, a marriage um, and would become this like there's this repressed desire that people might have to engage in that type of behavior and the shadow side would would kind of grow out of that. Um, I'm not saying that to say that that's a good way (laughs) to, to orient a society. I don't know if that needs to be a cultural norm, but that might be an example of then what um, the shadow side takes over. So sh- the shadow side then holds those desires for you so that the, the lighter side, the other side of you, um, is kind of freed from those desires and can live into the cultural norm. But it's still part of us, right? The shadow side is just kind of taking, taking it over for us. Um, now, let's say you live in a culture that says you, uh, let's see, let me use a not sex example. Um, let me, okay, let's use drugs. I think drugs is a good one. Let's say you live in a society that um, has said dr- drugs are okay to do. We have decriminalized them. We're not super fond of you doing them all the time, but we're, we're okay with you doing drugs as a society. But your own moral code says drugs are wrong and I will never do them. Your shadow side would still kind of take over those desires to do drugs because I think Jung would conceptualize the desire to do drugs as part of like these life drives of like to really feel things um, and to engage in a sensory experience right drugs <laughs> would be part of the life drive um, if your own moral even though the, the society doesn't say it's bad and uh, your own morals say this is not something that I want to do this is a desire I will not let myself feel the shadow side would still take it on and Young, because he conceptualized this as being an unconscious part of us, uh, the shadow side is not a part of yourself that you are in touch with day to day, he saw it as manifesting in dreams. And so if clients had dreams about snakes, monsters, demons, dragons, or any other type of wild figure, Young would say that is your shadow side trying to communicate with you. Um, he also would associate like darker colors with the shadow side, which I, you know, makes sense. Shadows tend to be darker. <laughs> um, so like a, if you had a dreams with really intense, like maybe blood red uh, or a black, dark browns, things like that. If you had those color schemes in your dreams, Jung would say, like, this is the shadow side trying to communicate with you. And, and Jungian therapists do a lot of dream analysis because they're looking at what messages your unconscious have for you. And We want to listen to the messages that our shadow side is sending us in our dreams because if we don't heed their warnings or we don't pay attention to them, then they can become overrun, overruling us, or they can, we can go to the dark sides if it will. 
So for me, the hiss really in, invokes this idea of the shadow side completely uninhibited. It's been repressed so long that it's come out and it's taken over and there is only shadow side now. Um, and even the imagery of the game, the the hiss controlled people have this like glowing blood red uh, like look to them, like their eyes glow red and then they're covered in this like dark goopy stuff and the the bigger bosses that are more mutilated by the hiss tend to be like really dark and grotesque. And so they evoke this idea that Jung had of how the shadow would manifest in dreams. And it's called the hiss, which evokes snakes, which is Jung's thing that snakes were a messenger from the shadow side. So you can see our main enemy is like the shadow side overrun. And so that the way that it interacts with the different characters shows us are they in balance or not. Jessie is able to maintain herself. In fact, she is the only person in the game that can fight off the hiss without a special device. And so she represents like this ultimate balance. She is not overcome by the shadow. She's able to balance both and kind of hold on to herself in the presence of these overwhelming desires. Her brother Dylan, not so much. He immediately like... Not immediately. In fact, he very consciously and like slowly watches and waits and sees what's going on, but then chooses to go to the dark side. And the former director, Trench, is completely taken over by the hiss. He says, shadow side who? And then immediately gets taken over by the hiss. Um, So I'm just going to talk about his archetype really quickly before I wrap this episode up. So um, again, Trench was the director before Jesse takes over and his archetype is the ruler which makes sense because he was the director Um, the goal of the ruler is to control and build a prosperous community Um, literally the title of the game is control so this makes sense Um, and the the director's job of the FBC is to control not only the supernatural objects that are in the FBC, but the FBC itself, the people itself. And then the building that the FBC is in is a supernatural building that is constantly changing and moving. And so the director's job is to be in control of all of those and to build this like, um, build this community that kind of keeps the mission of the FBC going. We learned through flashbacks from Trench that he was determined to be more in control of the FBC than his predecessor, which led him to kind of neglect his relationships, his specifically his wife and child, and to become very isolated and solely fixated on this purpose. So this is signs that Trench was already prone to giving into the shadow side completely and didn't have balance because he's too focused on the goal and not able to achieve that balance um, and, and becomes like upset when his goal is not met. The greatest fear of the ruler is chaos and being overthrown, which makes sense, makes a lot of sense. Um, we, we learn very quickly from the beginning that Trench has been overthrown from his position and if you've played the game and you know about the the board, um, you can interpret the beginning of the game as um, not Trench shooting himself, but rather the board eliminating him. Um, you you can interpret it that way, or you can interpret it as that um, Trench had become aware that he had lost control of the FBC 
and had thrown it into chaos by introducing this enemy into the building. Um, and, and so he has been overthrown. He's been overthrown by the hiss. He's been overthrown by the board. He's overthrown himself and things are in chaos and he's lost control. So his greatest fear has been realized by the time we catch up to him in the game. And the biggest weakness of the ruler archetype is their inability to delegate. And we see Trench do this. He's not able to delegate to his subordinates. He's not able to confide in others. Um, you learn through the story that kind of his core group of people who headed the other departments didn't really know what he was up to and he was not comfortable telling them. And so because he's giving into his fear and his weakness, then the shadow side, the hiss, is able to easily infiltrate his psyche and then therefore the entire FBC. So whereas I think that we're kind of all on a spectrum here, I think Jesse represents an archetype who has achieved balance, that she is aware of her shadow side and able to reckon with her shadow side by defeating the hiss in her own head. Dylan is more in the middle where he's aware of the shadow side. He um, holds out a little bit, (laughs) but then ultimately gives into it. And Trench is so unaware of his shadow side that it completely takes over and takes him off guard and and he becomes subsumed by his weaknesses. Whereas Dylan and Jesse are not necessarily completely subsumed by the weaknesses of their archetype. So I think that is about it for me today. I hope that this was helpful. Again, these are just three of the 12 archetypes that Young had. Um, So I can continue to do episodes on the other ones as I I find examples of them. There are plenty. (laughs) People love to talk about the archetypes in media because it's just such an easy way to illustrate these these characteristics um but yeah i think if you're a gamer if you're a gamer girl like me i really recommend control i had a great time playing it it's a beautiful game it's not super scary in that like things are jumping at you but i think that the kind of low-lying dread that follows you around the game is very interesting and there's a lot of lore to it. If you like finding lore, <laughs> there is a lot of lore to this game. It makes it a very rich text. So I will end it here. And as always, I thank you for listening all the way through to the end. And I will see you in the next spooky episode. Bye-bye.